Our first reading is from uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, and chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise share the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Since then, we have, a high, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, and chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain, where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good, so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The title of this sermon, which unfortunately I, I didn't put on the handout, but if you've had the, the schedule of sermons for the next couple of months, you'll know, uh, is uh, The Pastoral Jesus. And in the first of our new sermon series from Hebrews, uh, which we started a couple of weeks ago, we began to explore together how the preacher of this ancient sermon that we call the book of Hebrews was trying to help those in his congregation in probably Rome deal with the fact that from their perspective Jesus seemed impossibly distant from them. There they were, trying to keep faith in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, in difficult and potentially dangerous circumstances, and yet, despite all their faith, all their prayers, all their careful obedience, Jesus still seemed a long way away from the reality of their daily lives. They kept telling each other the stories of his life, how he had dramatically healed people of physical and mental distress, but all that seemed an increasingly long time ago. And with each year that passed, it receded further into the past, seeming less and less to match their own experience of what it meant to follow Jesus. And it seems that their practice of worshipping Jesus as Lord wasn't helping either. 
because the conviction that Jesus was divine, which is great and all very orthodox, meant that the one who had once seemed so real, so immediate, so approachable, was now equated with God up in heaven somewhere to be worshipped and adored, certainly, but not really present with them in any way that seemed relevant to their personal day-by-day experiences. And if all of this sounds a bit familiar to us, I'm not surprised. Christians ever since have struggled with the problem of the absent Jesus. As decades gave way to centuries and then to millennia, the historical Jesus became not just history, but ancient history. And as historical, critical, biblical scholarship tells us, even the Jesus of the Gospels was already several steps of oral tradition away from the wandering preacher and miracle worker of Galilee. And so for most Christians throughout most of Christian history, Jesus has been experienced as absent. Worshipped on high, seated at the right hand of the Father, yeah. Studied from afar through the gospel texts that share them, records the stories of his life, absolutely. But just as was the case with the recipients of Hebrews, he seems a long way away from the reality of most Christian experience day by day. And as with the recipients of Hebrews, not all Christians have been happy with this emotional sense of distance from their saviour. Many of the great renewal or revival movements down the centuries have been motivated by a desire to discover a more immediate, a more present Jesus. So you can rewind back, just plucking a few almost at random, you can rewind back to Julian of Norwich's 14th century revelations of divine love. You can go to the Welsh Revival. You can go to the charismatic renewal movement of more recent times. These and so many more have come from a desire to encounter Jesus in the here and now. And they can be very compelling. I worked in Wales for a long time and ministered in these barns of valleys, chapels. If you've ever been to Crane Street, Pontypool, you will know that that chapel makes this place look like a little pokey small building. It's a thousand-seater auditorium with a, with a glass roof put up when th- people were flocking into church. Five years after the Welsh Revival, of course, less people attending chapel each week than there were beforehand. It was over very quickly. But for a brief period, people longed to know Jesus in the reality of their working and daily lives. I really get it. Most of the mystical, ecstatic or miraculous movements in Christianity have been born from this desire to know Jesus here and now. And this desire to know Jesus, to encounter Jesus... This is what the preacher of Hebrews is trying to address in the language he uses about the pastoral Jesus. 
We saw a couple of weeks ago how he encouraged his congregation to discover Jesus in and through all things, the one who sustains the whole of creation, the one who is as close to them as the air they breathe and the ground they walk on. Well, the aspect of Jesus' presence that we're looking at today shifts the focus. If a couple of weeks ago we were looking at the cosmic Christ, infused in the whole of nature and creation and the cosmos, today we're looking at the personal pastoral Jesus, who speaks to the individual, to my soul, to your soul, to our hearts, to that, that just longing to know the immediacy of Jesus. The sustaining Jesus becomes the pastoral Jesus. The one who created all things is also seen to be the one who cares for each thing that he has made, including me, including you. The impersonal pantocrator, to use the theological term, is also the personal friend and confidant of us. And here, for a moment, fittingly, as we stand before a baptismal pool, I'd like to invite you to consider, to remember, just for a moment, how it is that you encounter Jesus. Is Jesus your Lord and Saviour, a kind of big picture Jesus? Or is Jesus your friend and brother? Is Jesus for you distant and out there, believed in, yes, worshipped, yes, but somehow other? Or is Jesus close? Can you think of a time when Jesus was closer to you than he is today? And what did that feel like? What I wonder was the context that might have enabled you to sense the immediate presence of Jesus in a way that seemed very real, but which is easily lost. Well, in the interests of not asking others to do things that one is not prepared to do oneself, I think for me, over the years, it has come down to my openness or not to emotional engagement with the disciplines of spirituality. I can hold the other Jesus with my mind, but when I allow my heart to engage, that's when Jesus feels close. And for me, this has been particularly true in the saying of prayers for others. It may sound counterintuitive, but the times I've most sensed the presence of Christ in my life have been those times when I've been praying for other people to know his presence. I can clearly remember being a student at university in halls of residence in the first year. And my practice at that point, because breakfast was served at 8 o'clock in the morning, which is a stupidly late time for breakfast, if you ask me. Um, so I'd be up at you know, half five, as I tend to be, and I'd sit there and I'd have a cup of tea and I'd read and then I'd pray. And I'd sit there and I'd pray and I'd pray for my friends and my family and for the things that were going on. And I can remember the more I prayed for others, the closer Jesus felt to me. 
I've not sustained that daily pattern of extended morning prayer. I'm not trying to hold myself up as some paragon. I mean, when I got to the point where I could make breakfast myself, I'd just get up and get on with it. But the principle has remained with me. Praying for others, for me, brings Jesus close. And this, I think, points us towards the way in which the preacher of Hebrews presents his congregation with what I'm calling this morning the pastoral Jesus. This is the Jesus who is with people in their suffering, in their difficulties. This is the Jesus who is sympathising with people in their weakness. One of the ways in which they and we can know Jesus is by our experience of his steadfast presence with us in the difficult times of life. One of the lessons which I've had to learn over the years as a pastor has been that for most of the time, I simply can't fix other people's problems. Now, given the fact that most of the time I can't even fix my own problems, you might be surprised that this has been such a hard lesson for me to learn, but it has. Deep down, you see, I am a problem solver and a fixer. And my default, when faced with the difficulty and pain of someone's life, is to kind of click into logical problem-solving mode and start offering solutions. And what I've had to learn the hard way is that this doesn't help people as much as I think it's going to. Rather, the pastor in me has had to learn, had to discover, the immense value of just patiently sitting with someone through their pain, journeying with them the long and hard path with no certain outcome. And the reason this is such a valuable discipline to learn, and it's not just something I need to learn, it's something we all need to learn, is because, as the preacher of Hebrews tells us, this is the Christ-like way. This is what the pastoral Jesus does. You see, the pastoral Jesus is not Jesus the fixer, who clicks his fingers and makes the pain stop. Rather, Jesus the pastor is the one who goes through the highs and lows of life with us, always alongside us, faithfully suffering with us. You know the phrase compassion. You have compassion for something. It means to suffer with. Jesus has compassion for us. He suffers with us. And this stands in stark contrast, I think, to many of the presentations of Jesus that are around in church, which would make him the answer to all of life's problems. From the get-rich-quick schemes of the prosperity gospel to the false hope of signs and wonders preaching, there are many churches and many theologies that offer quick-fix spirituality. Pray and Jesus will sort it out. Turn to Jesus and your problems will disappear. And of course, these are attractive, because who doesn't want an easy answer to life's problems? But they are not the way of the pastoral Jesus. 
We know this because the preacher of Hebrews grounds his presentation of the pastoral Jesus in the Christ of the cross. It is through suffering and death that the path to new life is opened wide. There is no bypass to the cross that leads us straight to resurrection. There's no cheap grace here. Jesus, the great high priest, can only make the offering of atonement for our sins, to use the language of Hebrews, because the sacrifice that he offers for us is the sacrifice of himself. As the preacher puts it in chapter 2, verse 18, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. This is the pastoral Jesus who enters wholeheartedly into the brokenness of our fractured lives and world to bring healing and comfort to those in need. This is the pastoral Jesus who takes on the mantle of death so that he can destroy the one who has the power of death. There is victory at the end of this. There is good news here, but it is good news through suffering and hardship, not in place of it. I suspect what's going on here in the mind of the preacher is a contrast with the Greek heroes of old, who repeatedly took on the forces of evil within the world of Greek mythology. So they typically and dramatically cheat death against all the odds, you know, a bit like Batman and Robin at the end of an episode. They escape the clutches of death at the last moment, returning still victoriously alive in the next episode, having killed the Minotaur or the Hydra or the Demian Lion or whatever the great personification of evil was in today's big adventure. And then they go on to the next saga to defeat some further personification of evil. The Greek heroes' efforts to rid the world of evil were only ever temporarily successful, as one monster gave way to another, and then eventually one hero passes on their mantle to the next hero. Whereas the book of Hebrews presents us with the pastoral Jesus, who doesn't cheat death at the last minute. He's the one who goes to the cross, who goes through death. As, of course, must all of those of us for whom he cares. What changes, we don't, we don't get to cheat death either, I'm afraid, I'm sorry. But what changes through the death of Jesus is that his death is for the sins of the world. It is, the preacher says, the perfect and once for all sacrifice of self-giving love, bringing forgiveness to all and robbing the forces of evil of their hold over the lives of those that they seek to intimidate. Evil in the world is often overplayed or underplayed. When it's overplayed, it's too big a thing. When it's underplayed, it's inconsequential. I think a New Testament view of evil can be summed up as two things, sin and death and the power that they have over us to affect the way that we live our lives. And if we are in hock to the power of sin and death, we will live lives that do not reflect the glory of God. We will not be who we have been created to be. And this is why 
The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of sins is such a profound thing. Because once sin is forgiven, evil's hold is broken. There is a unique perspective here on life and death that the pastoral Jesus offers to those of us for whom he cares. Within the ancient world, and indeed in our own, death was regarded as a great enemy to be avoided as long as possible because death is terrifying. It's the moment of ultimate reckoning beyond which the possibility for further justification in life becomes impossible. And whatever a person's view of the life hereafter, the brute fact of death marks the completion of this life. And it invites judgment on the eternal value of the life that has been lived and completed. And so the Greek heroes of old often sought to cheat death. They would journey over the sticks to Hades to steal loved ones back to life for a second chance. And we still have this language of a second chance at life today, don't we? The person who has narrowly escaped death or who has, has been cured of their terrible disease will often speak of having been given a second chance at life. And they might say how their priorities have changed and that they now want to live less selfishly and more meaningfully and good for them. And this, this kind of second chance at life is certainly a rare gift. And for those who receive it, it's one to be treasured and not wasted. But of course, the second chance at life, even that comes to a close eventually. But this is not the gift of the pastoral Jesus. He doesn't rescue us from the jaws of death to buy us a little bit more time to live a good life. Rather, he defeats the very power of death itself to dominate, control and enslave our lives. The perspective on death which the pastoral Jesus offers to those of us who are dying, and that is of course all of us, is that death is not to be feared because its hold over our lives has been broken because we have already been forgiven. We don't need some second chance to put things right because Jesus has already made us right with God. So as we, like the first century recipients of Hebrews in Rome, face daily pressures to compromise our faith, as we are tested and tempted, as we face difficulty and sorrow and suffering, as we are inexorably brought to a realisation of our own mortality creeping up on us one grey hair at a time, in all of this, we have in Jesus a pastor and a friend who journeys with us, who sits alongside us, who weeps with us, suffers with us, and ultimately faces death itself with us. We have in Jesus one who in all of this brings the gift of hope to our otherwise hopeless lives. And the preacher describes hope as the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It is hope which steadies our lives in the chaos of the world. It is hope which sustains us through toil and trial and testing. And the hope that the pastoral Jesus offers us is the hope of life renewed in the here and now.
The good news of Jesus' care for us is not so much that we get to go somewhere nice when we die, as a kind of reward for having been faithful in this life when it was difficult. Rather, the good news of Jesus' care for us is that this life itself is redeemed, that our lives, feeble and frail though they may be, acquire an eternal value in Christ, which transcends even the power of sin and death over us. And this gift is ours because the death of Jesus breaks the hold of sin and death. Our days are no longer enslaved to guilt, and our lives are no longer a quest for justification and redemption. We are justified and we are redeemed, so therefore we can live differently, free from the fear of our mortality. This is never to say, of course, that death should be actively sought. Martyrdom in a Christian context never involves seeking death. But it does mean that we can be faithful unto death and do so with a certainty that the pastoral Jesus has already given us the gift of life that transcends the actual lived days and moments of our lives. And as a thought to close... It seems to me that this can affect the way in which Christians approach the controversial topic of end-of-life care, both medically and pastorally. As those who work in hospices can tell us, not all death is defeat. Not all death is bad news. Sometimes death is a blessing, a gift to be taken and treasured, rather than an enemy to be avoided at all costs. Sometimes the cost of not dying is too high. And I wonder if those of us who have encountered Jesus in such a way as to come to a realisation that our own deaths are not the final verdict on our lives, I wonder if we can offer a constructive and hopeful perspective on those who are living with the imminence of their own death. Now, I know that there are strongly held views amongst Christians on both sides of the argument relating to the topic of assisted dying. I'm not going to argue a particular side this morning, but I will come clean and say that I'm part of an interfaith group that uh, seeks to provide a spiritual perspective on dignity in dying. Did you know that in the state of Oregon in the USA, it has been legal for terminally ill, mentally competent adults to have an assisted death since 1997? And the stories from there that have struck me as being especially pastorally significant have been those of people who went through the process of requesting the option of assisted death after they have received their terminal diagnosis, but who then choose never to use it. And over and over, what you hear is the story that knowing it was an option was enough to help them cope with the living out the final weeks of their lives with their terminal illness. The analogy, it seems to me here, is that a changed perspective on death can profoundly affect the way we live our lives. If we live in perpetual fear of death, that will affect the way we live here and now. In the case of somebody with a terminal illness, 
knowing that they have the possibility of control over the end of their life, affects the way they live their final months. In our case, knowing that through Christ, death no longer has an absolute hold over our lives, can affect the way we live today and tomorrow and every day for the rest of our lives, because we are not enslaved to the fear of what will come. According to Hebrews, the gift of the pastoral Jesus is a gift of daily hope. A hope that life need no longer be dominated by the fear of death because death is not the end of life. Those of us who have identified with Christ in his death have also been identified with him in resurrection. In a moment... Tommaso will go down into the waters of the grave at his baptism. And so he will be raised to new life again, having been symbolically cleansed of sin. This is baptismal image at its heart. Down into the grave, up to new life, washed clean of sin, the power of sin and death broken because of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so with Hebrews, it all always comes back to the cross of Christ. That moment in history where the power of death and sin over humanity are broken and where the possibility for life eternal breaks into the here and now. This is the pastoral Jesus who goes to his death to redeem our deaths and who draws alongside us in our lives, redeeming each moment of every day.